Today, we're going to continue in our study in Luke, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. So please join me there, because it's going to be important that you read carefully and listen carefully today, because the Lord is going to be doing, as He always does, the Lord is going to be doing spiritual warfare, but because the subject is spiritual warfare, it's going to be particularly evident in our lives today. Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by, by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and the breasts that nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So here we have a moment in the ministry of Jesus. We've noted, have we not, over the last few weeks that there are two distinct phases in the mission and ministry of Jesus. One that really covers the first part of the gospel story where Jesus is in Galilee. And his headquarters appear to be, of course, in the home of Peter and Andrew. And from there, Jesus is ministering and doing mission throughout the whole region. At the end of that mission, Jesus goes on retreat. And on that retreat, certain things happen. Peter confesses him as the son of God. And then they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James and John, see him transfigured in all of his glory as the son of God. And then Luke tells us that as he comes down from the mountain and begins to head towards Jerusalem, he's setting his face towards the completion of his mission a mission that has been discussed with him, with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is in the second half of his mission, the second half of his ministry. And it's as though we have a reprise of the teaching of the first phase. In the first phase, we of course have the Sermon on the Mount, where we see many of the principal things that Jesus wants to teach his disciples laid out for us. But in the second half, as Jesus moves from the Mount of Transfiguration, it's as though he wants to reiterate what it is that he's already taught. And then for those who are hearing it for the first time, give them opportunity to get in on the fun as well. And so we see Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer again. And here we see Jesus talking about the way in which the enemy operates. And he's speaking very clearly 
about unity and division, something I know that Rennes was able to unpack for us last week as we launched Xenia into their calling and ministry. Jesus is reiterating things that he's already said and we'll, we'll see it again and even today we'll take note of the fact that, that Jesus is going over important teaching that we really need to understand. And as he does that, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that the kingdom that he has come to proclaim and demonstrate is a kingdom of power. Here in the text, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. Don't you love that? I love it that there is the finger of God. It's not a com... Oops, excuse me, that was a, a bit of the water coming back up again. I'm glad it didn't come all the way up. Um, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a metaphor that's used a lot through Scripture, but, but particularly in the Exodus narrative in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, we see this metaphor a couple of times. The magicians in Pharaoh's court, they look at the plagues that have been sent upon, upon Egypt and they say, this is the finger of God. And then when God calls Moses up to the mountain again, the mountain where he has revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he takes him up the mountain and reveals himself to Moses there. And there inscribes on two great stone tablets that Moses returns to the people with. He inscribes the Ten Commandments with his finger. It is the finger of God that brings revelation. And so the finger of God is a, is a metaphor of power and revelation. And Jesus says, if by power and by revelation, I am able to cast out a demon, then the kingdom of God is among us. The authority and the power of the living God is here. Now deliverance takes on various different forms and today we're not going to particularly look at the whole subject of deliverance from demonic presence. We can deal with that on future occasions and perhaps we'll do a weekend again where we can look at the naturally supernatural life. Uh, when we looked at it last time, uh, in the summer of last year, we looked at the naturally supernatural life and we particularly focused on healing. And maybe we'll be able to do that again and look at, 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 at healing and deliverance. The reason I'm not gonna do that is twofold this morning. First of all, the overall sweep of the gospel tends to not focus on the actual mechanism of the deliverance of people from demons. It rather tends to focus on the freedom that the individual receives and the kingdom that comes with power. Because as Jesus says, as Jesus says, when one who is stronger than a demon appears, there's no contest. And so it's not a particularly interesting subject. If you have Mike Tyson and me in the ring, you're not gonna have a lot of people paying a lot of money to see the outcome of the fight. Everybody knows what's gonna happen. And so, and so it is with the scriptures, it's not a particularly interesting subject. It's much more important to look at 
who it is that delivers than the means of deliverance. But secondly, deliverance is not simply an issue of being set free from the presence of a demonic agent. It is living a life of freedom set free from the shackles of Satan. And that's what we're gonna focus on this morning. What is it like to be set free from the shackles of Satan? Jesus says that when a strong man encounters a stronger man, his armor and his arms are of no use to him because the stronger man strips him of his armor and disarms him of his weapons. Jesus is the stronger man. And if you know him as Lord and Savior, he lives in you. And so here's the thing. When a demon encounters you, he's terrified. Because every time that a demon encountered Jesus, the response of the demon was terror because the presence of Jesus meant that the demon was in, was in the place of judgment because the King of Kings was present. So if Jesus lives in you, the enemy is afraid of you and not the other way around. He that is in you, says John, is what? Is what? Is what? Than he that is in the world. First John 4 verse 4. He's greater than he that is in the world. He that lives in you. And Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 11 and following, he tells us that the work of Christ on the cross not only cancelled the written law that stood against us, condemning us, but on the cross, Jesus disarmed all the powers of the enemy. And so if we have come to the cross, we have received the Lord Jesus who is greater than the enemy. And because he's greater than the enemy, he can disarm him in a moment. And that is always true. Now the problem is that Jesus was not simply confronting demons. And in the end, it wasn't demons that killed him. It was people. The great, the great sadness and, and the great complexity is this, that the devil, who is not omnipresent, the devil is a creature fallen from heaven, one of the principal angels of heaven, leading the worship of heaven, who was so enamoured by what it was that he saw God receiving that he himself envied God, his position, and sought to assert himself and usurp the position of God and was cast from heaven because of it. The devil is a creature and so therefore is not able to be present everywhere at the same time. Only God is omnipresent. It's really important, all this stuff. I hope you're, if you're taking notes, I hope you've got this. The devil is not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. He's not omniscient. He doesn't have all knowledge. And he's not omnipresent. He's not present everywhere. And so the way in which 
the devil asserts his influence and authority is through a network of agents, both demonic and human. Obviously, the demonic network described in Scripture, not in great detail, but occasionally, seems to indicate that there is a hierarchy within that network of principalities and powers. That network of human agents is a network where he is able to use and abuse those human agents to do his bidding and to do his will. And sadly, human agents are often the most religious people. Just a little bit later on in this text, Jesus identifies the two, if you like, principal culprits in the devil's network of influence, the Pharisees and the teachers. The Pharisees are the self-righteous hypocrites. That's how Jesus describes them. That's not my description. The self-righteous hypocrites who populate the people of God. And the teachers are the rule-giving grace killers who love to burden others with great loads that others find impossible to carry. These groups of people are being used by the enemy for his agency. And here, perhaps it's their voices that we hear who ask Jesus for a sign, not that they've not just seen one, or say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. And it's they that Jesus has to deal with the most. Did you notice that the demon is cast out immediately with a word? And yet, Jesus is drawn into a prolonged conversation with people. And so it is with us. So often, sad to say, we are enlisted by the enemy unwittingly, of course. Nobody would, would willingly, certainly at the beginning, would willingly be enlisted by the enemy of our souls. But we are unwittingly enlisted by the enemy for the purposes of his work and influence in the lives of others. So how does it work? Let's, let's kind of go after this this morning because I think it would be great that we saw deliverance here today. Anybody agree with that? Amen. Everybody likes to see deliverance here? Well, strap yourself in. Because deliverance may well come to you today as you listen carefully to what it is that God wants for you by way of freedom and liberation. We see in the life of Jesus that the demons articulating the word of the devil in the case of Jesus, of course, the devil himself turned up. He didn't want any of his minions taking on that particular task. But for us, it's gonna usually be the demons. They're very good at temptation. And temptation falls under three categories. Jesus is the son of man. If he's the son of man, he is the representative human being. Therefore, everything that he experienced is representative of what it is that we can and will experience. 
And so Jesus receives temptation that is about his appetite. Turn these stones into bread. His ambition. Establish your kingdom using my methods, says the devil. Approval. Jump off the temple and have the angels catch you because that would be an amazing way to establish God's approval of you and the crowd's approval of you so that you can start your messianic work in the way that you want to with a big bang. Now, human beings they're often operating with the kinds of issues that all of us are operating with there's not a person in this room who hasn't been tempted in their appetites the appetites of drink the appetites of food, the appetites of sex and shelter, the, the basic needs of, of human life. There's not a person in this room who has not known the temptations of asserting yourself in such a way that you gain more territory than other people. There's not a person in this room that has not been tempted to seek the affirmation and the approval of others so that you can position yourself in such a way to provide yourself with security and significance. Not a person in this room. Everyone is subject to the same temptations. And Jesus, so the writer to the Hebrews tells us, suffered precisely the same temptations that we suffer so that he can identify with us as a good high priest, offering himself as one who fully identifies with those for whom his life is being offered. It's good that we're serious. I hope you're okay. You're still alive out there, are you? Okay, you're very quiet. So how does it work? Well, it works like this. Fear, guilt, shame. Now, don't get me wrong. Demons will, will operate in these ways. But so often, it is human agents that will remind us to be afraid, that will prod us and probe us to feel guilty and ashamed. Why fear? Well, think about Jesus in the wilderness. All of the appetites that we live with are built on a fear of lack. Are built on a fear of scarcity. Every fear that you, that you live with is built on scarcity, not abundance. In the garden, before humanity fell, we knew abundance. Every seed-bearing plant was ours. Everything that we needed in all of its abundance was given to us. And then, of course, we lose our position of close proximity to God and we lose our place in the garden that's been prepared for us. And so we lose abundance and find that our experience is defined not by abundance but by scarcity. I'm not a great fan of Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the founding thinkers of existentialism. But one of his great contributions to the understanding of how human beings think is that scarcity is the driving force of almost all human endeavor. We're afraid 
of lack. Jesus will die in any day if he doesn't get food quickly. He's been 40 days in the wilderness, six weeks without food. His body is screaming for food. And the devil says, you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. Now, of course, everything in him wants to obey. We, not, we, we may not be at the same level of extremity, but our, our appetites will be operating in the same way. They'll be calling out to us. And one of the things that you learn about appetites is that they're like children demanding attention. And you have to say no to one of them for all of them to listen. This is really good. I hope you're writing this down. So here's fear underneath our appetites. You maybe don't think of that very often when you're afraid, but, but fear and, and being afraid is all about a lack of something, a lack of security, a lack of provision, a lack of something that you know you need. Guilt, what's guilt? Guilt is to do with transgression. Transgression means that you've stepped over the boundary of the place of your authority. Everybody's given authority in their life. It's entirely legitimate for people to stand in the knowledge that they should not be overrun or assaulted by another person. That is the, that is the territory of their authority at an absolute minimum. What we are doing, of course, is living with the grief of once being the rulers of everything that we could see. God said, be fruitful and rule. And when we lost that position, we lost the rule. And there is a longing in us to rule again. But God says, it's mine and not yours. And I don't want you transgressing. And when you transgress, you step into territory that's not yours. And the mechanism that will remind you is that you'll feel convicted of your transgression and guilty. And so guilt is to do with ambition. And shame, of course, is to do with approval. When a child grows in a home where they're made to feel ashamed. What happens is that they, they so long for and so search for approval that they'll go to almost any means to achieve it. Approval and, and affirmation is a sign to every beating human heart that they are blessed. And when it's withdrawn, they know that they are shamed. And so all of these things are operating all the time right underneath the temptations. So the devil has a very clever strategy. His, his strategy in spiritual warfare is to tempt you and then to make you feel bad because you not only fell to the temptation, but you heard the temptation. Listen to me carefully. Being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted is to be human. The devil, the devil tries to have it all ways. He, he tries to have it all ways in that he wants you to feel bad once you've submitted and succumbed to the temptation. But if he can't get that, he's gonna get you to feel bad because you felt the temptation and maybe didn't even fall to it at all. The people that surrounded Jesus, the self-righteous hypocrites, 
and the rule-giving grace killers, the Pharisees and the Levites, they were great at generating fear, guilt, and shame. They had fear, guilt, and shame in industrial proportions that they could dole out to anybody. They were trying to do it to Jesus by saying to him, it is by Beelzebub that you cast out demons. They're using the same strategies that they are always using. Fear, guilt, and shame. Now I've worked with lots and lots of people over the years and uh, particularly in the last 15 years, an awful lot with pastors. You would be amazed, or maybe not, how many are beset by fear, guilt and shame. Many of them, of course, are Baptist pastors who never, ever encounter alcohol in the world in which they live around the congregation that they serve. Don't go anywhere near it because it's not right, is it? Now, nobody can give you any biblical or rational reason as to why it's not right, but you know, they come up with stuff about people being alcoholics and you know, it's not good for other people. But there's no real argument for it. But they're, but they're trapped. They're trapped. And when they used to come to our home and to our ministry in Paulie's Island, South Carolina, of course, you know, we're English people, so we're not affected by American issues. <laughs> you know, the, the, the two things, American evangelicals go to an Englishman's home and are shocked to find beer in the fridge. An English evangelical goes to American's home and are scandalized to find a gun in the cupboard. We all have our hang-ups. I don't recommend that you have beer and guns in the same place or, you know, all of that. <laughs> Hold my beer and watch this. Um, <laughs> they're the last words of a redneck. Um, Listen, I'm a South Carolinian. That's where I became an American, so I'm, I can't, you know, I'm allowed to speak about the family like that. <laughs> so, so we all have these hang-ups. We all have these hang-ups. And the Pharisees and the Levites, boy, do they mess us up. So these, these Baptists, you know, they'd, they'd come and spend time with us and we, we would just have dinner and serve wine and, you could see them thinking, wow, that looks great. <laughs> and then they'd taste some and they'd go, oh, it really is great. Now, the friends that I used to have down in South Carolina, who used to take them fishing and out on the boats and all that kind of stuff, they'd say, um, can you just send me just one Baptist, please? And I'd say, why, why is that? They said, well, you know, I mean, can you send me two Baptists, is what they said. And I said, well, wh wh why two? And they said, well, if you only send me one, then he drinks all my beer. But if you send two, then they watch each other and they don't drink anything. <laughs> so, um, so what's going on there with Christian leaders? Do you think it might be something to do with fear, guilt, and shame? Anybody in the room thinks that it might be to something to do with fear, guilt? It's got nothing to do with revelation in Scripture. Yeah? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. I, uh, my, my task over the years as a Christian leader has been to lead the church in mission. And that means leading the church in mission in the world, which means that you have to understand the mission field. And of course, you know, I spend my time at the beginning of most days and throughout the week, giving intentional, 
time and energy to understanding the world I live in. I read a couple of papers in the morning. I read some important publications through the week, things like The Economist, and then I try to ensure that I've got a sense of what it is that's going on within the culture and within the country at any one time so that I've got a sense of why such things as populism are so important and abroad amongst us right now, why, why plant-based diets are so popular right now. What's all that about? What is it that is behind the economic trends and the spiritual, spiritual movements of our time and culture? And of course, to do that, you just have to have some exposure to it. Just recently, I was um, smiling to myself. I was with an elder and his wife watching the final edition of Star Wars in the movie theater, which of course is one of the principal cultural events of last year. There weren't many big cultural events last year, but there were several that were enormously significant. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to observe them so that I could think them through. I mean, I enjoy the entertainment and all of that, of course, but I wanted to think them through because I wanted to continue to press into understanding the way that people think. But you know, I've had people say to me, well, the theological background to the whole Star Wars saga is Eastern religion. I say, yeah, I, I know that, yeah. And you going to Star Wars is gonna get people to become Hindus. And I say, no, it isn't. You idiot. <laughs> Why would it do that? Well, if it doesn't, then you should still feel bad. Okay, well, I'll pretend I feel bad and you can carry on feeling great about yourself. Fear, guilt, and shame are the principal strategies that the enemy is working in your life and mine to hold us captive. To hold us captive. Now, if you wanna know how freedom comes, then I'm about to share it with you. If you're not, then my recommendation is to miss the last three or four minutes. Would you like to know how freedom comes? Okay, let's look at um, one example that Jesus gives us just in the next few verses. And then on other weeks, we'll look at uh, other examples. So, uh, let's, go to, um, let's go to chapter 12 for a minute. And um, just to place this in context, uh, Jesus has continued the conversation uh, with the various people around him. And, um, and then he's begun to go after the people who are his principal opponents, the Pharisees and the Levites. And it's causing consternation in the hearts and minds of his followers. Now what Jesus has in mind is freedom. And what he has in mind is freedom from fear. How does Jesus bring freedom from fear to his disciples? It's gonna be so important that you listen to this. Chapter 12, verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Okay, Jesus, I think I know what you're trying to do here, but it doesn't feel like you're giving me freedom. Yeah? 
Now, what Jesus has in mind is freedom from fear. But what he does at the beginning is he hypes up fear. He makes fear bigger than it was previously. Here are the disciples. They're looking at the gnashing teeth of the Pharisees and the Levites. And they're thinking, boy, I think they're gonna come after us. And Jesus says, are you afraid of those guys? And they're going, is this a trick question? (laughs) Of course. And so Jesus says, well, don't be afraid of them. If you're going to be afraid, at least be afraid of someone who's really fearsome. Be afraid of God. Be afraid of him because he can do far more than what they can do. They can only kill your body. He can kill your body and throw you into the fires of hell. And they're thinking, okay, uh, yeah. Anything else? So what does Jesus do at the beginning? He says, fear God. A distant, unknown, all-powerful being. Fear him. But listen, it already starts getting better. Verse six. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Now, they're not expecting Jesus to be talking about sparrows at this point. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So fear God, but don't fear God. Jesus, what are you saying? Fear God, but don't fear God? On what basis do we not fear the one whom we should fear? You see, what Jesus is doing is he is unveiling who God is. If you don't know him, of course you're gonna be afraid of him. He's all powerful. But if you know him just a little bit, the fears begin to be allayed. Because you begin to recognize that he values you. And so fear begins to be mitigated by the fact that you're valued. Isn't that exciting? Now already you're thinking, I like this a lot better than the first statements about fearing God. But we're not quite there yet, are we? So turn to verse 22. What Jesus, what Jesus does is he says, now, It may be that you don't have full-blown fear because you realise that God values you, but let me take you deeper into an understanding of what it means for God to value you because it's way more significant than you understand right now. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
So if we drill down into the fact that God values us, we begin to believe that we are valuable because it's God who establishes the value system. And we're thinking, okay, this is starting to feel better now. Now, now I don't have to have the big fears or even the little worries because somehow God in his kindness who takes care of the birds and the flowers is gonna take care of me. What a wonderful thing, but we still are operating with this word, which is by its very nature, the word God, by its very nature, impersonal. Strap yourself in. Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagans run after such things, and your father knows that you need them. The world is defined by scarcity. And so, of course, fear, fear will grip your hearts daily if you live as the world lives. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And here it is, verse 32. Do not be afraid. This is the same person who just moments before said, be very afraid. If you're gonna be afraid, be very afraid. So he uses the classic method of hyperbole. He literally hypes up the situation so as to inflate it to an impossible degree so that it will collapse in on itself. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your... What does it say? For your father. Is pleased to do what? Give you his kingdom. So, how do we go from fear to freedom? By going from understanding that the Creator is God through to understanding that the Redeemer is your Father. You go from fear to freedom by going from God to Father. Do you get it? Woo! It's kind of exciting, isn't it? You're not supposed to be afraid of your Father. Sure, you're supposed to respect him and honour him, especially those of you who are here listening and your parents are right next to you. Of course, you're supposed to respect them and honour them and all of that. But fear is not the appropriate response for a child to a parent. Now, fear, in the presence of Almighty God, who you do not know, you best be afraid. But Almighty God, who comes to you in the person of Jesus and reveals to you that He is your loving and kindly Father who longs for you and for your embrace, He's not the one to be afraid of. Do not be afraid. Not my words, the words of Jesus. Now it works for guilt. And it works for shame, and other weeks we'll look at that as well. I wonder how many have suffered with the self-righteous hypocrites and the rule-giving grace killers and have been afraid of your own shadow 
and of what others might think. Today is a day of deliverance and a day of freedom. Today is a day when the Father extends his hands to you and says, I have the kingdom that I want to give to you. And I want you to have a fresh vision of me, seen through the eyes of Jesus. I want you to know me as Father and be free from fear and guilt and shame. Anyone alive to say amen? Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to have a little bit of worship. And um, during the worship, we're going to have a chance to respond. Now, some of you don't respond because the grace killer that you can hear in your head is saying, if you go forward right now, everybody's going to think that you're a sinner like all of the other people at the front. (laughs) Yeah? You know it's true. So don't listen to those voices anymore. Choose to listen to a father. A father who is so thrilled to give you his kingdom and wants you completely free of the fear that holds you back from his embrace. The guilt that condemns you daily for which Jesus died and the shame that is replaced by his blessing so you know only his approval and affirmation. God will work in our hearts to transform and change us if we allow him to do it by his spirit. So during the singing of this first song, just start coming forward. The the prayer team is gonna come and pray for you, the elders and uh, house church shepherds, they'll be coming as well to pray for you. It may be that you're a house church or an elder or somebody, you may need to come up for prayer yourself, that's okay. Whoever it is, come and be prayed for. And the prayer is this, a celebration of deliverance.